Growing up, there were a couple of small trophies on the sideboard in our house. They were dad's and they were from his high school track running. In his day, he could run 100 yards in a little over 10 seconds. I inherited none of this track speed, by the way. But I loved those trophies as a kid. They had a kind of medal on the top of a stand that rotated, sort of like a two-dimensional globe. Dad, on the other hand, was pretty indifferent to them. He'd moved on to other things. What are your trophies? Now, you might have some literal ones, from success on the sporting field to some form of professional recognition. Perhaps you've recently, I don't know, picked up an Oscar. Maybe there's some Oscar winners who listen to this podcast, or maybe an Olympic medal of some sort. Or perhaps your trophies aren't physical things. Rather, they're triumphs that have stuck in your mind. Victories won and status obtained by work and through timing, with just a dash of good luck. How do those past achievements shape you now? And how do they perhaps constrain you? little like a gilded cage. And to build on this, what trophies are you now chasing? What's the nod, the pat on the back, the gilded statue, the mountain peak that you're seeking and still wanting to climb and to conquer? How is that enlivening you, filling you with courage and focus and discipline? And what's the shadow side of that? Welcome to Two Pages with MBS, the podcast where brilliant people read the best two pages from a favorite book, a book that has moved them, a book that has shaped them. LGO, Laura Gasner-Oting, is the best-selling author. She has a new book out in the world, which we'll talk about, a keynote speaker, a coach, and a friend of mine. In fact, you may have been part of a summit that LGO and me, MBS, and our friend Ozan Barrow constructed and ran back in October, a way the three of us got together to co-create and teach together, which was wonderful. By the way, my two pages interview with Ozan is imminent, coming next week, actually. One of the reasons that LGO Laura is my friend is that she loves to take on the same big questions that I too wrestle with. I am uh, somebody who has spent my career thinking about why success doesn't equal happiness and how we can get unstuck and leave, live the, the lives that we have always wanted to live, the lives that we secretly, desperately, maybe sometimes suspect even just a little bit are inside of us. Do you remember the first time you decided for yourself what success was, what winning looked like? I'm told that when I came home from school, five years old, I told my parents, you know, Tracy Harwood and Pauline Wade are definitely smarter than me, but I'm smarter than everybody else. <laughs> so in other words, I've been managing my kind of success through winning gene that apparently is part of my DNA for quite a long time now. But for LGO, it was when the movie Grease first came out, you know, John Travolta as Danny, Olivia Newton-John as Sandy, LGO and her sister fell in love with it. We would put the album on over the loudspeakers and we would dance out in the backyard uh, on the Chattahoochee tile that was, you know, glued into the, you know, that, 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 into the ground. And she would always be Sandy and I always had to be Danny. And I probably, the first time I ever wanted to win was I was like, ah, I like define winning as being Sandy and I never got to be Sandy. <laughs> 
Now, if you know the movie, if you can remember back to Greece, Sandy was the good girl. Yeah, she was mocked for her wholesome personality, but you knew she was also going to be getting the A's in class. I, I think that there's a million miles between being loved and being really seen, right? And so when I was a kid, the seeds of my drive were to be loved. I did you know, I did all my chores. I got good grades. I was polite to the neighbors. So I would get the gold stars. I would get the, you know, the good grades in class. I get the pats on the head. I would get the, you know, good job. We love you. And it felt transactional. And it's not that my parents didn't love me. It was just, that was sort of how I thought that you earned love. So LGO kind of was Sandy in a way, but she learned how to break out of that gold star shell that she lived in. Except she didn't break out of that shell to impress a boy like John Travolta. I woke up one day and realized that it did, it was sort of hollow to be loved for being the person that everybody else wants you to be. And it wasn't <laughs> until I was like, well, if I just fly my freak flag and I am myself, right? if people love me for that version of me, that's all the marbles, right? Like that's it. So I, I the, what drives me now, I think, is trying to continue to connect to that deepest version of who I actually am and who I actually want to be. And it may be that I'm now on the other side of what my mother used to call the FU 40s, right? So I've just turned 52. And like, you know, you get through your 40s and you're sort of like, well, this is pretty much who I am. Like, yeah. if I'm not fully baked yet, I'm pretty close to it. So like, I might get a little better. That would be great. I'll probably get a little worse. That's not going to be so great. And like, if somebody gives me feedback, I'll go to school on it. Like, is that real? First of all, is that somebody from whom I want to take feedback? Number one, number two, which is, that's a big F number two, is there truth in that? So like last week I posted a video of myself, as you may remember, like sitting on my desk, like housing a sheet cake as I'm talking about my new book. I'm like, it's (laughs) my birthday and I'm just eating this whole sheet cake. And I I didn't even know what a sheet cake was. They'd introduced the whole idea of what a sheet cake is, which is, if you don't know, an enormous slab of cake. It is, but it's not just a slab of cake. It's like the supermarket cake you get, the the one that is so disgusting. It's like right. yellow cake with like white icing and the kind of icing that um, when you chew it, you can actually feel the granules of sugar. Yeah, it's in slightly your gritty. It's totally it's dis- that. I totally know the one. Yeah. <laughs> disgusting. And the more disgusting, the better. Like I've been to Michelin star restaurants all over the world. You give me a piece of sheet cake and I'm a happy lady. Like that's nice. it. Like, and I want the corner piece. Like I want all of the icing. Yeah, I want all it all. The icing. <laughs> and I happen to be sitting there like in a pair of overalls and a tank top and I'm like housing the sheet cake and a fellow speaker that we know called me right after I posted and was like, oh my God, you should take that down. That's so off brand. It's not yeah. polished. You're eating with your mouth. You're talking with your mouthful. And I'm like, yeah, that's <laughs> just me. And he was like, yeah, but everything right. you put online looks so polished. And I'm like, no, no, you just don't know the full me. And yeah. not only that, my readers actually love the hot mess that I am because yeah. when I give them the like polished punch in the face, they know what comes with that warm hug. So for me, what drives me now is how to just show up fully as I am, knowing if I do that, all the trophies and the awards will come. And they'll mean more actually if they come this way. But what about you? Look, I'm going to answer what about me? I need to just ask you before you go there, there's that moment where you wake up and you notice it's a bit hollow to, to chase other people's approval and trophies from, you know, a, a recognition in that way from other people. How did you get there? 
because that's not oh, that's, yeah. that's not that's not a small thing. That's not a oh, I, you know, I've just woke up and realized that I shouldn't, you know, I shouldn't combine green and pink because the colors don't go. It's that's a that's a profound existential shift. Was there yeah, a catalyst? Uh, there there was a moment. Um there was a moment and then, you know, as they say you can connect the dots backwards. Like it all made sense once I had that moment. So I look back and I'm like, "Oh, I dropped out of law school and joined a presidential campaign. Mm. Okay, I ended up in the White House, but I left the White House partway through the administration, which nobody does. Um and then I went to go work in in search, but you know, like it all made sense in hindsight and all the people over, you know, 20 years of trying to recruit people that were happy, but not, or were successful, but not happy. I was like, Oh, click, right. It was just this giant click. And it, this was the moment I was sitting at, at my, in my corner office, I was the youngest vice president of an executive search firm that did specifically nonprofit university foundation advocacy, social service work. Right. Uh, so I was finding C-suite uh, positions for NGOs, for people who are changing the world, who had purpose. And I was sitting there in this corner office that it was beautiful, overlooking all the Boston uh, commons, <laughs> Boston Garden. Beautiful. Yeah, I know beautiful. That. And I was, yeah, yeah, it's gorgeous. It's absolutely gorgeous. And I was listening to my clients talk to me about whatever it was that they were trying to do. They're changing the world. They're feeding the poor. They're creating opportunities for women. They're, 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 um, you know, fighting for immigrant rights, whatever it was they were doing. And, and I kind of, my mind sort of drifted away from their problem. They need to find great candidates to do this work to my problem, which is that I'm about to hit my numbers. Not only that, I was about to blow my numbers out of the water and I was going to get a big bonus, but I was going to make my boss so happy because my client's definition of success was solving hunger, was helping these immigrants, was curing cancer. And my boss's definition of success was the P&L. And I realized in that moment, as my mind drifted away and my client noticed and so I didn't get, I didn't make the numbers because I didn't sell the work because they realized that right. I didn't care about their problem. I cared about my problem, which was my boss's problem. In that moment, I realized that I was not part of their solution. And if mm. I wasn't part of their solution, then I was only part of their problem. And I had that moment where I was like, oh, that's not yeah. why I do this work. Shoot. And so I went into my boss's office a couple of weeks later, and I, I had been doing a lot of thinking about how do we create a different business model that works for our clients first, solves their mm. problems first. And I basically walked in and I was like, here, there's a better way. And he was like, there's the door. Oh, it's like, <laughs> and, it's like and, Tom Cruise in that movie. Exactly. Like I was like, okay. So I like, I had my manifesto. manifesto. Totally. And so in that moment where I was like, well, if he's not letting me part of the solution, then I'm going to be part of the problem. And I, that's untenable. I can't do it. So like me and my manifesto, my goldfish, right? Tom Cruise, I walked out the door and I started my own firm doing work completely differently. But it was in that Mm. moment where I was like, oh, I'm so busy trying to fill the boxes on my boss's definition of success that I'm actually missing the entire reason that I dropped out of law school and I joined the Clinton campaign and I went to the White House and I went to this firm. And it was so, and then in hindsight, I was like, and that makes sense now. Like the, the, the teacher who told me that I was really argumentative and I'd be a great lawyer because of course I told her no, because you know I was argumentative. But um, <laughs> in in that moment, I was like, oh, definition of success: become a lawyer, right? I'm yes. watching TV, LA Law, and Ali McBeal, and I'm like, that looks glamorous. So all of the steps along the way, who you should marry, who you like, what kind of house, what kind of like, yeah. what size you should wear, like all those things were all handed to me by somebody else who just put these rocks in my backpack, and I didn't mm. even realize that I was weighed down by those rocks. 
until suddenly I threw them off and I was like, oh, everything makes sense. Everything makes sense. Do you think that only can happen when you, when, if you're lucky, if you kind of hit your thirties or your forties and you, you have to realize you you just have, without the rocks that people are giving you, you're, you're directionless. So when somebody throws you a tidbit, you're like, oh, lawyer, oh, this, all that. And you kind of chase it because you're like, it sounds good. And how would I know any alternatives? Yes. Yeah. Is it just like you get older and wiser, hopefully? Yeah. I mean, look, (laughs) I talk a lot about how failure is not finale. It's Mm. fulcrum, right? It's the place from which we learn and we grow and we iterate and we change. And there's, I actually was giving this talk once in Austin and there was an astronaut in the front row and I was like, failure is not finale. It's fulcrum, (laughs) except for you, sir. (laughs) Exactly. But for the rest I've, of I've us, I've done right? that talk to do a bunch of people who run a nuclear power station. I'm like, yeah. not all of these things I'm saying apply to all of the things you're doing all the time. <laughs> exactly. But like for the rest of us, I mean, I don't know. I, again, I spent 20 years in executive search. So I yeah. interviewed people who were bold-faced names and bold-faced organizations. Mm. They were incredibly successful, which is why I was calling them. They weren't very happy, which is why they all called me back, right? So they're in my interview chair. And do I hear I got straight A's and then I went to the perfect graduate school and then I got the perfect first job and then I've worked my way up? No, it's like left turns and right turns and U-turns and MBS. Those are the things that make us most interesting. Like I've heard you tell stories that are fascinating and none of them (laughs) are like, let me tell you my unbridled success. They're like, let me tell you about the time that I almost got sued by my professor, right? I mean, they're great stories. Yeah. So wait, but what are your seeds? Don't I want to, I want to, I don't want to, I want to know what your drive. I want to go back to that. It's not entirely, so it's not entirely, I'm not entirely clear where I get my drive from because I know my parents looked at me and they're like, who, who are you? I was a little bit alien to them because I, you know, had a, a willingness to kind of be in public that might neither of my parents really had you yes. know, as a three-year-old i go up to strangers in a supermarket and go hi my name's michael i can hop would you like to see me hop oh i don't um, even do that now yeah exactly <laughs> I, well, that's what I, do. I, I still do that but i'm just now i get <laughs> paid a bit of money for doing it um and um you know i had a strong streak of of not kind of figuring out what was different and and pursuing that. So, you know, everything from running a 10 kilometer race dressed as a a fairy with a pink tutu to uh, all sorts of things. So it's not entirely clear. I also had a drive to win. Mm. I was, I was, the story my mum tells is me joining Cub Scouts. And after the first meeting coming back and me telling her that I was the the sixer, the, you know, the lead of this small subset of the, of the pack, which is like, how, how did that happen? You you literally only just joined tonight. I said, well, I just explained to the guy who was the sixer that I was better than him. So I should, I should <laughs> be the sixer. <laughs> and this poor, whoever this kid was, was like, okay, I'm handing over the stripes to Michael. Um, and you know, my I would first... love to do a study on where Paul ended up. That would be really yeah, exactly. fascinating, like right? He's an alcoholic in a gutter somewhere because <laughs> he was it was broken as a seven year old. Um, <laughs> so for me, it, there's been a degree of having to learn to um, value winning less strongly. Yes, and there was a there was a, a moment I remember playing cricket in the backyard. And 
um, my grandparents were over from England and my grandmother was bowling. So she would have been in her 60s, I would guess. Um, and I hit a, a, a great cricket shot and she basically dived full length to pluck the ball you know, an inch off the ground because she was very competitive. She played hockey for, for Great Britain. Okay, there's um, the DNA drop yeah. right there. Uh-huh. And I threw the bat and stormed off and was kind of sulking in a corner. And I just remember in that moment going, I'm not sure this is a great outcome. <laughs> I can't remember exactly what I felt, but I just remembered seeing myself and going, I don't need th this winning thing seems to be overrated. At least losing seems to be overrated. Yes. So then it's just a, a, a lifetime of trying to learn to lessen some of that. And yes, you know, 30 years ago, I, I did some men's work, um, when I went on retreats and stuff. And part of that came up with a, a personal statement. First time I kind of done something like that. And it was to, and I still talk about this today, to infect a billion people with the possibility virus. Mm. And the power of that for me, Laura, was that creating a virus as a metaphor means that I am, I decentered myself from being the star. I don't need to be the spotlight. In fact, it's not about being the center. It's being, uh, even anonymously putting stuff out in the world that makes the world better. So that was yes. a, a catalyst moment for me, which is like figuring out my my role as a servant leader rather than my my role as winning a trophy yeah so i you know it's 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 i love that i love that and i i actually i've worked with a lot of servant leaders in my time given how much yeah. work i've done in politics and and philanthropy and i have a little like be in my body about the servant leader thing because i think so often we think of ourselves as servant leaders and we put the emphasis on servant and we sometimes forget that there's a lead part of it too. Right. And so you end up getting this martyrdom. Um, there's a lot yeah. of burnout. There's a lot of sort of overcommitment, stretched too thin. And so I um, I think I like to think about it a little bit differently. Um, mm. I think about it as the difference between, between institutions and cathedrals. Nice. Yeah. So if you're building an institution, that idea lives beyond you, right? Mm. If you're building a cathedral, then everybody's praying to you. And when you disappear, <laughs> all done. Um, yeah. and for entrepreneurs, it's a, it's, it's advice I often give. I think, you know, you mentioned that I, I, I founded this firm and I also sold it. The reason I was able to sell it was my name wasn't on the door. I didn't make yeah. it about me. And it's, um, the hardest thing for me in becoming an author and a speaker that it's like, look at me look at my ideas. I'm here in the center in the spotlight. And it's, you know, you have, coached me a lot on, you know, the importance of marketing and that I need to be telling people yeah. about my stuff. And it's really hard because it feels very cathedral-like until I remind myself that it's about, you know, you want to infect people with possibility. I, I yeah. love that. I like, I, I think every one of us has this goal inside of us that we, 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 we revere so much that we almost whisper it when we yeah. talk about it. And we don't know if we're allowed to have that dream but we can like kind of see it around the edges and it doesn't want to let go of us. And I'm so fascinated <laughs> by what gets people to, to, to say, you know what now, 
Yeah. I'm going to do it. I'm going to try it. I'm going to go for it. If I fail, whatever. And, you know, I, I've had long conversations with our mutual friend, Jonathan Fields, who yeah. talks a lot about when he was younger. Uh, he he found a, a can of a bunch of paints uh, and an old desk in his grandfather's basement. And he like immediately put the desk on like a bunch of blocks and started painting things. And he, he had visions in his mind of what the result should be. Yeah. But of course, what he created didn't look like that because his <laughs> expectations were so outsized to anything he had even yeah. any right to expect at that level, having just started. But he would take it and he would destroy it and he would throw it away. He'd rip it up and he would just he, he would be so angry with himself. And this sort of perfectionism that he expected was 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 unfair. And then over as he says, getting knocked to his knees a lot and like a whole lot of yoga and a whole lot of meditation and a whole lot of, you know, making (laughs) mistakes and coming back. He now, he said to me, he said in the last book that he wrote, he's like, the coolest thing is that there is a paragraph on page 10 that I could not have written five years ago because I wasn't that person yet. And how cool is it that every time I see something that people are capable of doing, I don't throw my cricket back down and storm off. I think, amazing. I can now spend the next 10 years being able to get good at that. So that's kind of really helped me think about, um, about it in a way where it's, it's sort of, when it's about you, it has to be like perfect and it has to be all about, you know, the thing that you're doing. But if you sort of let go of it and you let it become this ongoing experiment that everyone else gets to have ownership on, Mm -hmm. I don't know. I think it there, it can, it can, it's for, at least for me, it releases the pressure of the win need. Yeah. There's so much more here I want to talk to you about, but I'm going to ask you about the book you've chosen to read. Yes. So the book I've chosen, and I don't know who, you know, if people are choosing fiction, nonfiction, but I've chosen Stones from the River by Ursula Heggie. This is a book of fiction and I haven't heard of this. So I'm, I'm curious to know how it came into your life. Uh, well, uh, I had a mad crush on a boy uh, a, a young man that I worked with in the White House, and he was a voracious reader. Mm. And he, um, he, uh, we would we would walk home from the White House together, and we were we were we were very good friends. And I had this huge crush on him. Uh, and we would always stop at Kramer Books in Washington D.C. and Dupont Circle on the way home. And there were tables laid out, and he would always just like point to books, like this one's good, that one's good. And of course, <laughs> in my like young romantic mind, I was like, he's sending me messages, and he wants me right. to read these books. So anything <laughs> exactly. he thought was good, I would of course end up reading. And somewhere along the way, Stones from the River by Ursula Heggie was one of those books. So it came out in 1994. And I worked right. in the White House and from 1993 to 1997. So this was a brand new yeah. book at that time. And you can see it's like kind of dog-eared and the, the yeah, spine yeah. is sort well of loved. bent a little bit. It's well-loved. It's well-loved. It's it's well well as, as all good books should be. Um, and yes. what pages have you chosen for us? I'm actually going to read the first couple of pages. Okay. Perfect. I sort of, I, I, this was such an opportunity to go through the whole book again. And what a gift that is. <laughs> So do you want to hear about the book first? Do I just jump in and read it? Like, what do you... Well, well, why don't you set it up in whatever way you think is needed and then plunge in? Okay. So um, this book really affected me when I read it. And I I actually read it um, traveling through Greece and Turkey, like Mm. backpacking. Like I think I had, you know, fleas from staying in youth hostels. (laughs) And I was on an overnight train, or sorry, an overnight bus from... Istanbul into Cappadocia, which is in the middle of the country, as you know. And I was just sitting in the back of this bus, like bouncing, like reading this book with my little like flashlight, 
sobbing at the end of it. And I think all these Turkish people were like, who is the crazy American back there? Um, but it just moved me. It just stuck with me so much. Yeah. And so um, the book is set in um, in Germany, uh, starting in 1915, which is, you know, what, what I'll read. And it goes through post-war, post-World War II Germany. And it's basically all about the common, the lives of everyday common Germans yeah. through this very tumultuous period coming out of, uh, coming out of world war one and into, and then after world war two. And it's it circles around Trudy Montag, who is okay. the, um, the main character. Brilliant. Well, take us there. As a child, Trudy Montag thought everyone knew what went on inside of others. That was before she understood the power of being different, the agony of being different, and the sin of ranting against an ineffective God. But before that, for years and years before that, she prayed to grow. Every night she would fall asleep with the prayer that while she slept, her body would stretch itself, grow to the size of the other girls her age in Bergdorf, not even the taller ones like Eva Rosen, who would become her best friend in school for a brief time, but into a body with normal length arms and legs and with a small, well-shaped head. To help God along, Trudy would hang from door frames by her fingers until they were numb, convinced that she could make her bones lengthen. Many nights she'd tie her mother's silk scarves around her head, one encircling her forehead, the other knotted beneath her chin to help her head from expanding. How she prayed. And every morning when her arms were still stubby and her legs wouldn't reach the floor as she'd swing them from her mattress, she'd tell herself that she hadn't prayed hard enough or that it wasn't the right time yet, or so she'd keep praying wishing, believing that anything you prayed for with this heart would surely have been granted if you were only patient. Patience and obedience, they were almost inseparable. And the training for them began with the first step you took. You learned about obedience to your parents and to other adults, and then about obedience to your church, your teachers, your government. Acts of disobedience were punished efficiently, swiftly, a slap to your knuckles with a ruler, three rosaries, confinement. As an adult, Trudy would scorn the patient fools who knelt in church waiting. But as a girl, she'd go to mass every Sunday and sing in the choir. During the week, she'd sometimes slip into church on her way home from school, taking comfort in the holy scent of incense as she whispered her prayers to the painted plaster saints that lined the sides of St. Martin's Church. St. Petrus next to the confessional, his eyebrows perpetually raised in an expression of shock, as if he'd overheard every sin the people of Bergdorf had whispered to generations of weary priests. St. Agnes, with her mournful eyes rolled up and her fingers clasped to her bosom as if rehearsing to withstand countless other attacks on her purity. St. Stefan, with a pile of chocolate-colored rocks hiding at his feet, except for, the, for one pasty toe, his bleeding arms extended as though inviting his enemies to hurl even larger stones at him and ensure his eternal salvation. To all of them, Trudy prayed, and her body grew, but as though her prayers had been twisted in some horrible joke, her body did not stretch itself upward as she presumed it would be, yet had failed to specify in every single prayer, but expanded into a solid width that would eventually make her forearms as massive as those of Herr Emmers, who owned the butcher shop, and her jaw as formidable of that of Frau Weiler, who ran the grocery store next door. By then, Trudy had come up against the moment where she knew that praying for something did not make it happen, that this was it that there was no God magic, that she was as tall as she would ever be, and that she would die someday, and that anything that happened to her until that day up until her death would be up to her to resolve. She knew this with stunning clarity that children to the core that April Sunday in 1929 in the Braumeister's barn where the circle of boys closed around her. 
not gonna read what happens. And she saw herself as a very old woman and simultaneously as an infant, as if her past and future were at opposite ends of the taut rubber band that someone had let go of just for an instant, causing her entire life, every minute she had lived and would live to coil in on itself and touch where she was in that moment at the barn. She knew that she'd always be able to see herself that way again. She'd watched herself pull her mother from the earth nest beneath the house, dismantle a section of stone wall in the cellar, and dig a secret dirt tunnel to the blouse house, stroke her lover's back with both hands, and feel the fine oval hairs of the base of his spine in the night sky that swirled around them, recoil from the heat of the flames that spurted from the broken windows of the synagogue and showered the school and the thoracerium with sparks the color of the fabric star Judenstern that her friend Ava Rosa would have to wear in her coat. It's a wonderful setup. What what is it about these first pages that pulled you into the book? So it the first pages it makes you think like okay so there's this young girl and she's small and there's this whole world of things that are about to happen to her and all she wants to do is become bigger. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing about Trudy Montag. Trudy Montag is a dwarf, and so she never grows. Mm-hmm. And not only does she not grow, she almost becomes invisible in this way. So like throughout the book, she has a choice every single time to either become a victim and to be, um, to be invisible and to have other people define who she is or to live the life that she can live. And what she realizes in the book is that because she is this, 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 this Zwerg as, as uh, they call her in German, people will either say things around her that because they just don't think that she's fully human or they will confide in her in a way because she thinks she's there. She's sort of this mystical, magical person. And so she throughout the book becomes the person who, um, she, she, she overhears, um, you know, on British radio and she brings the information back to the German. She overhears German soldiers, um, talking and she brings that back to the resistance. She hides Jews in her, um, in her attic because nobody's going to look in the Zorg's house. Right. And so she ends up using this thing that made her so different that she grew up hating, just detesting and actually turning into the very thing that defines all that she can be in her life. Here's a question I want to ask you, Laura, and you can, you can skirt this if you want. Yeah. Um, what have you had to grow to love about yourself? Ah, yeah. um, I, so I, I, Going back to the, you know, the, 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 the perfect sister growing up. Right. I, um, I was just a year behind her in school and all of my guy friends had crushes on her. Right. Mm. I remember going back to my 10 year high school reunion and all my guy friends were like, did you look like this in high school? I was like, yeah. And they're like, why didn't we date? And I'm like, cause you were in love with my sister. I was invisible. Um, and I remember crying to my mom about it one time. My mom saying like, it's okay, Laura, you're the smart one. P.S. My sister has two master's degrees. So like, it's not like she's the dumb one. Um, But by the way, uh, parents of kids, don't ever say that to your kids. (laughs) My parents, of course, my mother meant it absolutely perfectly. And, you know, and I am, I'm smart. So like, great. Um, But I think getting comfortable, um, getting comfortable with sort of who I am and um, always feeling so insecure that people were going to love other people more than me Mm. caused me to create this very sarcastic outer shell. Cause you know, if you leave with a good left hook, you don't have to worry about, you know, 
You don't have to worry the about best the right. Form of defense, right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. So you know, I would leave with like a really hard offense, figuring if I like went in hard, then I wouldn't have to show that I wasn't perfect. And so all of this learning that you know failures not finale that it's actually you know it's 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 the housing the cake while i'm talking about the new book that like just <laughs> right. and i'm and i and i'm a hot mess doing it like people actually love the imperfection more than the perfection mm. they can relate to the imperfection more than the perfection and lord knows i have a lot of imperfection so i think um growing to love that um uh, going growing to love the part of me that is always in process Right. Um, that is never perfect, that uh, doesn't always know. Um, because, I, I, you know, I think I think that uh, the fact that I am just like a super nerd about a lot of things is, I hope, part of what makes me more compelling as a mm -hmm. human. Um, mm -hmm. But it, you can't, you don't know that unless you're comfortable showing it, you know? Yeah, yeah I feel, I mean, on a, a, a perhaps parallel way, the fact that I have a cleft lip and palate, I think, plays to an advantage. It makes me different. It makes me less polished. It makes I have a speech impediment of sorts, um, and I, you know I've gone away from thinking that's something to be downplayed. It's not that's something I put a, a, a spotlight on particularly, but I think it's part of the part of the package that makes me a bit more interesting and different from other people. And I'm and were happy you to bullied? be different. Were you bullied about it as a kid or were people loving you uh, because it's like, how did, how did that, how did that manifest in your childhood? Well, my dad has a cleft lip and palate and my, the brother closest to me in age also has a cleft lip and palate. So it was normal within the context of my family. Mm -hmm. So much so that when my youngest brother was born and he didn't have a cleft lip and palate, at some stage he had a bit of a crisis because he's like, I want a cleft lip and palate because I don't have one. And I'm like, yeah. Um, so, and I've, always had a pretty robust sense of self so i don't really remember being bullied i, I also have a very selective memory <laughs> so i may have been um i know my 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 other brother nigel found it harder um uh and he did he kind of came a different route to kind of kind of getting used to who he was um but for me uh i was always kind of like pretty comfortable about going look i'm i'm actually i you know i should be the sixer of this cub scout pack <laughs> step yes. aside i should be the captain because yes. i just i'm going to claim that claim that um i want to make the connection between what you're talking about this moment of acceptance of the the unloving of the imperfection the humanness um you know your your first book was called um limitless which yes. actually in I know this isn't what the book's about, but it can kind of hint at a kind of searching for perfection. Um, your new book is called Wonder Hell. What's the journey between those two books? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 so interesting because when Limitless came out, I did a bunch of podcasts and people would ask me like, what are five books every leader should read? And I, you know, would talk about books that we all talk about for leadership books, but I would always mention stones from the river <laughs> and people are like, what are you talking about? Because I do, there's just something in like reading a book about somebody who, um, has had to overcome 
something, but in mm. the overcoming of it actually embraces it, right? That we can sort of see this whole version of themselves. And and there's ob- obviously, like, I didn't write Limitless thinking about Stones from the River. It was only when people were asking me in the podcast that I was like, well, what are the books that are, you know, right. super interesting? Um, and then I was like, you know, there's a, there's a seed there probably early on about this thing. Yeah. Uh, so- Limitless is based on this idea of if all those people that I talked to were successful but not happy, why are we filling in all the boxes on someone else's version of someone else's success and then finding ourselves not happy, right? Like we, 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 we filled in all the boxes. Why are we still so empty? So in Limitless, I talk about, as you know, how to find both success and happiness, this idea of consonance, which is when what you do matches who you are. And it's made up of calling connection, contribution, and control, but it really focuses on this singular question which is what does success mean for you? How much calling, how much uh, contribution, how much uh, uh, connection, how much control do you need right now in this point in your life? So, you know, if you are at a point in your life where you don't actually want any calling, cool, fine. You don't have to have any, maybe you need tons of contribution. Great. So like, if you don't need any calling, but you don't have any great, you're in consonance there. That's perfect. You just need to have as much as you need at any particular time. And each of us at every age and at every life stage that definition changes. So, you know, when we're young and somebody says, pick a major, pick a trade, pick a college, pick a career, we're like, okay. And we don't have a frontal lobe. So like, we don't actually know like who, we we don't actually have the capacity to make good sound logical decisions when we're asked to make this decision that's going to affect the very rest of our lives. So I'm so um, looking forward to that phase passing for me. I know it's coming (laughs) soon, but uh, you know, I'm still working with an adolescent brain pretty much here. But you know, I mean, there is a good part of that. I mean, I obviously you're kidding, but, um, the thing is like the adult version of us says, stop, don't do it. You might get hurt. It might be a problem. And so when limitless came out, it, it debuted on the Washington post bestseller list, number two behind Michelle Obama. Oh my God, crazy. Huh? What else can I do? Right. It was incredible. It was amazing. It was wonderful. But also in that moment, I was like, well, I want to be on Good Morning America and I want to be under the oak tree with Oprah and she's got to talk to somebody. Why not me? So it also became stressful and anxiety provoking and Mm. identity questioning. And uh, I was exhausted and I was staring burnout right in the face. So on all these moments where we find a little bit of success, whether you sold your first business or your first coaching contract, like whatever the thing is, you suddenly are like, oh, what else is there? Right. And all the literature out there is like bigger, better, faster, more hustle harder. And I was like, well, that's untenable. So if I'm in this moment where it's wonderful and it's hell, it's wonder hell, how do I Mm. get through it? And so when the pandemic hit, I talked to a hundred different glass ceiling shatters, Olympic medalists, uh, uh, startup unicorns, everyday people like us to find out how they did it. And what I realized, I'm not an everyday person, (laughs) (laughs) you know, you know, I, sorry, I talked to, I talked to, uh, Olympic medalists. I talked to startup unicorns. I talked to everyday people like me and sixers (laughs) like you. And, and and I thought they were going to give me an answer. And the answer was, yeah. On the other side of this wonder hell is just the next one and the next one and the next one, if you're lucky. And so what I came to learn is that there is a voice inside of our head that's like, this is too hard. Don't do it. Quit. Stop. And that voice is this governor telling us mm. to that, that, you know, we might fail and we might embarrass ourselves and things are going to be terrible and we shouldn't do it. And it feels like a limitation when in fact, this version of wonder hell 
where you see your potential and you feel the burden of it is only available to those of us who actually can have the imagination of what's next. It's right. not a limitation. It's actually an invitation. So yeah. um, for, for, for me, it's about um, constantly coming back to that question of not how much more can I do, but how much more can I be? And mm. does this at this age and this life stage fit with where I want to be and who I know that you know I am inside you know, when I'm being seen and not just being loved? So Laura, we're talking um, a little bit before your book is published. Yeah. Um, and so I imagine this insight is being tested. <laughs> um, <laughs> Daily. <laughs> so how, how are you holding success for this book? And how is that being challenged just by the incessant gnawing that a book launch does, which is like, you know, it's never there's a sense with book launches in my experiences which is like it's never enough whatever you're doing is not never ever enough and it's probably not going to work so how are you first of all how are you thinking about success secondly how's that being tested so you know i think i have all the regular metrics of success like how many books will i sell and will i make a list and all of those things um and that's being tested a lot it's being tested a lot and every single day um because who knows if I make a list, right? Like you could sell all the books in the world and they can decide to just leave your name off the list. Like it just, yeah, who knows? Yeah. So it's random and it's capricious in a it's way a that word. it could maybe feel cruel. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and at the same time, will my life be demonstrably different if I make a list or not? Probably not, right? So it's like there's success for my ego, and then there's success from my heart. And mm. I got an email this morning from one of my newsletter readers. You know, I send out a newsletter every Tuesday, my Hello Tuesday. Yeah. And I sent out um, some early copies for some of my like most you know loyal readers. And I got an email back from somebody literally just this morning who said, you know, I have to tell you, I didn't think this book was for me because I didn't know if I'd actually felt enough success for it. And I read Limitless and I love Limitless and I didn't think this was going to be for me, but I'm halfway through the book and I feel like you and I are sitting on the couch and you are just giving me like oh, nice. the best life advice ever. Yeah. She was like, I need to read this book over. And I think she said something like, you know, the joke's on me because this book in fact was exactly everything <laughs> I needed. And I can feel like I hear your voice mm. with me. And honestly, somebody saying like, I'm reading your book and it feels like you're talking just to me. Like, right. is there, is there like, is there any better compliment an author can have than that? When somebody says MBS, I'm, I'm, I read how to begin. I read the coaching yeah. habit. Like I felt like you were talking just to me. Well, let me, let me ask you this. How is that different from seeking people's approval as a young kid? And it's and, yeah. and let me ask you a, a, an add-on question, which is, what's the success around the being for you? Because you talked about success as a kind of consonance between the, the beingness of you. Yeah. How's that? Where's that? So I, the, I, can, I can tell you very specifically the, the difference. I don't know if I could be as specific with the answer of the being. Yeah. Um, the old me would have wanted to succeed publicly. Right. I make the list, I do the big media, I do all the things where I can be like, see, I'm worthy, here's my list of trophies. Yeah. And then um, 
During the pandemic, uh, like a lot of us, I just kind of stopped sleeping, right? Stress, <laughs> all the like, and, and, and. I think and, you did that more extremely than most of us, but sure. Yes, yes. On. Well, yeah, yes. <laughs> and, um, uh, and, and before I was diagnosed with the disease that 800 people in the entirety of the United States have, I had stopped sleeping, which might've brought on the disease, uh, the super rare one in 415,000 <laughs> disease that I had, uh, which I'm fine with, by the way, for anyone listening, who's just got panicked. Um, I, I went to go see a therapist and it's the first time in my life I'd ever had therapy. Not that I was against it. I just never felt the need for it. And now I'm like, they should just mm-hmm. pipe therapy in through the HVAC system. Like everyone <laughs> should have therapy. And I, I walked into the, 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 the psychiatrist's office and I was like, I haven't slept in three months and here's the problem. And I think I've just got like slow, like trauma. Like, I don't like something's going on. Our friend Tasha York was like, you should talk to somebody. And I was like, okay. And when Tasha tells you to go talk to somebody, go talk to somebody. And he diagnosed me fairly quickly as being like, um, a bored overachiever, right? Mm -hmm. A really boring overachiever who suddenly can't stack up the trophies. And he was like, well, you know, we could work on your overachievement. And I was like, no, man, that's a feature, not a bug. (laughs) And he was like, yeah, but it's untenable. And I'm like, no, no, I'm fine. And he, checkmated with, but you're here. <laughs> I was like, yeah. ah, touche. Right. And, and, <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and, and he, and he, and he said to me something so profound, um, that I actually put it into wonder hell. He said, you know, Laura, you don't have to give any of the trophies back. Mm. And I was like, Oh, whoa. like all the trophies I had I have, I have already achieved in my life. Like they're all still there. Like yeah. what will the trophies, the public trophies I get from this book do other yeah. than just weigh me down that I have to drag a bigger thing of trophies around, right? Yeah. It doesn't actually do anything. So the old me, um, the younger me, and certainly the pre-pandemic me uh, would have said success was pleasing other people and showing up and like a, getting everyone else's approval with those trophies. The new me um, just wanted to write a book that was so true to who I am. Like when mm. I sent it to my publisher for the penultimate round of, of edits, they sent it back to me kind of wiping the LGO out of it. They wiped <laughs> the, like, the, like, like I'll say something like, and then the storm is coming. So you race to the grocery store, milk, butter, cheese, eggs, got to get everything in time. And it came back to me like, and then when you check the weather report, you notice that there is a weather system coming in. You right. decide to drive to the grocery store. While there, you buy milk, butter, cheese, comma, and eggs. And I was just like, no, like that's not like, right. oh my God. And I, I would say success now is that I got on the phone with the, with the publisher and I was like, WTF, where's the LGO, yeah. right? Like, no. And he said, yeah, but it's a little too long. And, you know, you tell stories that kind of a little, like we can, we can tighten it up a bit. And I'm like, what you're tightening is taking the me out of it. And the me is what my readers read. And so for me now, success is knowing who I am mm. and how I can bring that to people who actually want to see more of me. There are plenty of people who want to see no more of me, but for the ones who want to see more of me, I, I, I want to bring it to them. And so that I think is, is the difference. Yeah. That's a perfect answer. Yeah. Um, I that might also quick... answer the second question. It I'm does. not even sure. No, no, yeah, does. I that, think answers, so. <laughs> that answers the second question in a perfect way. Um, have your are your goals changing between with the next book coming out? Well, I'll tell you the thing that's really making a difference. Um, our goal for this new book is to improve 10 million working relationships. And because it's mission driven rather than yes. book sale driven, it makes all the difference in terms of how lightly and I'm holding the the launch of it. And also how committed I am to the launch. Because I feel like I'm 
I can see how getting this book out in the world makes the world better. Yes. Whereas it's very easy, and I've experienced this with other book launches where I'm like, I'm just really trying to sell books. <laughs> and so the favors I'm asking for, because pre-launch, you ask a lot of people for favors. Can you blurb yes. my book? Can you mention my book? Can you re-mention my book? Have I asked you to mention my book? You know, it's like, there's this relentless um, asking, which yes. is, um, you know, it can be hard at times. Um, uh, it, it feels easier because I'm like, I know why I'm, I know why I'm doing this and mm -hmm. I can actually, I'm, I'm more enrolling people in a bigger mission rather than just helping me make my life better. Yes. So, yes. so that helps. Um, and you know, the other thing that really helps me and I remember it sometimes is the saying I've already won. <laughs> Because you don't have to like give I, the trophies back. <laughs> I feel like I've already, you know, I'm like, I have, I have so already won because look yes. how extraordinarily good my life has turned out so far. It's amazing. Yes. And uh, I was just trading emails with a friend who is another author and he's got a book out that came out three months ago. It's still on bestseller list. It's still the number one self-help book. And he's like, he's a bit down about it. I'm like, dude, you are, you are snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. You no have already, kidding. You have already won. But you know um, we're so good at that. We're so good. I love that snatching defeat from the jaws of victory. I've 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 heard that expression before, and it's so <laughs> clever. But I think we do that. I think we walk around and and you know ninety percent of everything could be amazing, and we're yeah. like, yeah, but what about yeah. you know? And it's like, oh no, no, like I just. I mean, I think like the 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 secondary answer to your question is. I think that this would be successful. I could just be present and enjoy it. Just oh, like actually that. enjoy the ride a little bit because we are, I did, I did, um, you'll enjoy this because I know you do yoga. I did yoga this morning. I went to a hot yoga class and it was the first yoga class I've been to since 2014. <laughs> <clears throat> once a decade. I do yoga yes. once a decade as well. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so as you might imagine, it didn't go so well. Um, and on the way out, the teacher was like, how do you feel? And I was like, creaky. <laughs> <laughs> but she did this whole thing while we were in our shavasana, which of course is my favorite position because she right. just got to lay there, on the floor. Yeah. lay on the floor. And she talked about, about how like, we're going to leave the studio. And we're all going to be like, what's on? Like, what's next? What's next? Like, let's get on to what's next. And I just... I, I have not had enough opportunity in my life to be present in the opportunity in my mm. life. And yeah. I'm going to do it differently with this one. Do you have, um, do you have something celebratory planned? No, no but you don't. I, well, we, Mar, as a family, we're going on a vacation at the beginning of July. So the book yeah, comes out at the beginning a, of April. So like, I want a celebration for you and the book. I mean, I could get another sheet cake and just... <laughs> Maybe that's what Possibly I'll do. If it makes a list, I'll people. sit on my. Uh, <laughs> I want no, you to, see, I don't like to go up to people in the supermarket and hop in front of them. No, that's no. not like just well. call, call in the yeah. people who you see and who see you, and yeah. bring them together to celebrate the book. Yes, I should do that. I should do that, and we can all eat sheet cake. Exactly. <laughs> Hey, or or uh, I can eat it all because no one will want it because it's disgusting. And then more shake kick for me. Exactly. That's a double win. Um, a final question, Laura. What what needs to be said that hasn't yet been said between you and me? Oh, gosh. Um, what needs to be if, said? If anything. I just, you know, I, here's what I want to know because I think you are such a good question asker. I want to know what is your, um, when you get people together for dinners, or what is the question that you love to ask them most? 
I'm not going to answer it because <laughs> they're always oh. so hard, but I want to know that. I wonder what your brain is thinking about these days. I, I, I literally collect questions. Like in May next year, I'm putting out a journal, which is a collection of my best questions to help people um, go deeper and stuff. So I, I think hard about this and I collect it. But the question I um, often open with is what are two essential things about who you are? Oh, that's great. And what, what that does is it makes people figure out what's essential. <laughs> and it's often not my job title or the number of kids I have or where I live or, you know, the, the usual stuff that normally gets thrown out in an introduction. It's normally this is what matters to me. And okay, so I got to ask, what, 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 what are the two essential things about you? Well, it's interesting because I, I also tweak it to go, what's essential about me now? <laughs> because yes. I also like it changes, it evolves. Um, but one of the, one essential thing is I am becoming a writer, meaning I'm claiming space to, it, I'm, it's not about the books I do or don't produce. It's about recentering my life around um, a writing practice yes. and what I think that involves, which is writing and reading and not answering email every <laughs> minute and all that sort of stuff. So I'd say being a writer is an essential thing. And um, I, I think the other thing that comes to mind for me right now is I'm the son of um, a failing parent. You know, my mm -hmm. dad died a year and a half ago. Um, my mom is having a very hard time in her widowhood. And so that's just become a much more central part of what I'm doing, which is like working with my two brothers to figure out how we support mum as she has a hard time in her life. Yes, yes. Well, and those two things are a little at contrast with each other, I would imagine. Yeah. So yeah. so that's interesting to sit there and go, oh, because like when I went back to Australia last time, it was very hard to do any writing because I, I was so um, – my attention was always pulled away from what I was trying to do deep work on to cook dinner or cook lunch or vacuum the house or. Or just the, the emotional phone. energy of. Just emotional energy. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Um, do you want to answer that to essential things about you? No, I don't know. I'm, 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 I think, I think, uh, huh. I think I am somebody who loves really hard. Like I am just one of those people, like if you are, if you are like, if you are in my heart, you are in my heart and <laughs> it takes a very long time for somebody to be out. But once you are out, you are out. Like it is right. just, I am like an, I just, I love hard. I, I read yesterday, I, I posted a video of me reading the acknowledgments of Wonder Hell on, on Facebook and my husband uh, watched it at work and he was like, you are just, it's what I love about you. You're just like, you are just, it's just all there. And then I think the related thing is probably that I'm an all in person. Like mm. if I'm going to run, I'm going to train to run marathons. If I'm going to write a book, I'm going to like write the whole thing. Like, I'm just like, I just, I don't do anything halfway. I just, I don't, I don't, I guess the easiest way to say it is, is I don't like, I don't like the liminal space. Huh. Yeah. That's, that's maybe that's one essential thing about me, but that's, that's it. That's yeah. I guess the second essential thing is that I really like efficiency. So I'm just going to give you <laughs> one, one <laughs> no, thing. No, two, I, two, uh, you gave me two yeah, things. Yeah. 
you know, I, I, I love hard and I don't like the liminal space. I love yeah. both those things about you. Yeah. Which is funny because Wonder Hell is all about the liminal space. <laughs> so yeah. The whole point of Wonder Hell is a liminal space. We, we write the book we need to read. <laughs> Always. Yes. The question that Laura's new book, Wonder Hell, raises for me actually is not the one that I posed at the start of this interview. That question about what trophies have you collected and what trophies are you pursuing and how are they shaping you? It's a little more twisty, a little deeper perhaps than that. And here it is. What would it be to fully accept the success you've already had? It's rather than rushing on from this, it's like to be with the success, to celebrate the success you've already had. Not beating yourself up about failures from the past. That's where sometimes our brains go. Not grinding towards the future, kind of relentlessly pressing forward. That's somewhere that our brains sometimes go. And not dismissing or hurrying on from what it is that you've done or who you've become. Settling into the success, appreciating it, relishing it. I'm trying to do that. And you know, honestly, it is not easy. In fact, it reminds me a little bit of uh, trying to do a yoga stretch. I had a yoga class this morning, so this is on my mind. You somehow have to relax your brain so that your muscles learn to relax as well. You hold the pose. Your brain says, Michael, you can let go. You can relax. And somehow that tells your muscles to actually let go. And the stretch deepens. And then weirdly enough, your brain goes, oh, look, you are relaxed, and that allows you to relax a little more. It's this virtuous circle. So you and the success that you've had, you can take a deep breath, and you can name a success for you. You don't have to name all of them, but just find something. And if you can relax into it and all that's good about it, how does that feel? Maybe while you're marinating in this glorious moment, I can suggest a couple of other interviews. Javon McCormick, talking about how to face fear. This is a man that has invented himself quite a few times, and it's worth that conversation just to hear his various stories. And then Madeline Dorr, her interview is called How to Be Alive, and I thought that was really great. She has such a good newsletter. I, if you haven't already enrolled in that, I suggest you do that. Now, as for Laura, she has her book out, or at least it's coming out today or yesterday or tomorrow or sometime about now. If you like the sound of her, and I think you probably do, I'd encourage you to check out this book. It's one of the things that I'm doing to support her in the book launch. Um, you can pre-order or just order Wonder Hell in all the places you normally buy a book, but you could go to heylgo.com because uh, you'll find pre-order bonuses there if they're still available. And on all the regular socials, Twitter, Instagram, and the like, it's at HeyLGO. Thank you for your support, your encouragement, for passing the word along, for giving reviews. You're awesome, and you're doing great.